the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya Podcast. So I've never met Will Witt. I've never spoken to him before. This will be a first. And I'm really excited because I'm deep into his book, Do Not Comply. He first kind of gives you this overview of how we are in decline in this country. And it's heartbreaking. And I didn't know what to expect. I read First, I read the, the foreword by Dennis Prager, who's, a, I think, a great mind. Talk about this book and sort of the where it what the genesis of it was, why you decided to write Do Not Comply. Well, thank you so much for that. And obviously, Dennis Prager, I worked for Prager U for five years. He's a mentor to me. So if you guys read the book and you're like, oh, that sounds like something Dennis might say in some parts, is because he's he's kind of one of the guys who's inspired me more than really anyone else in the world, even though, you know, he's Jewish, I'm Christian, and a lot of my book has a lot of Christian values, but he's still just one of the most brilliant thinkers on, on this earth right now. But in terms of why I wrote the book, um, I think the title kind of plays it out for us right there. Do not comply. What is it that all these people want us to do? They want us to comply. This isn't just COVID with lockdowns and masks and vaccines. This is the bureaucrats. This is the Democrats, the rhino Republicans. This is the, the big pharma. This is the teachers union, the big media, big tech, all these different entities want to turn you into a slave. And so I wrote this book essentially as what I would say is an antidote to these people's corruption, to these people's greed. How do we break free from all of the things that they are trying to make us comply with? It's about being an individual and standing for integrity all that you can. When you use the word slave, that could inflame some people. That could make some people think, oh, how could you possibly use that word? You know, words are... Are, are are toxic these days. You've got mm-hmm. to stay away from certain words. But what what do you mean when you say slave? Well, Frederick Douglass said that to make a contented, contented slave, you need to have a thoughtless one. And I thought that that was pretty eye-opening when I heard that. And that what we have today is more of a brave new world type of slave than a 1984 type of slave. In the novel 1984, you have Big Brother coming down. He's watching every move. The people know that they are being watched. Versus if you ever read the novel Brave New World, it is positive reinforcement. It is positive reinforcement that turns you into a slave because you essentially can do anything you want. There are no consequences for immorality and any sort of thing that you could ever want. Someone provides it for you. Think about the United States. The United States spent $22 billion on welfare. I mean, it, we're sp- or it's 22% of our national budget is spent on welfare every single year. That's an abhorrent amount of money that we are spending on welfare, giving people handouts so that they can just sit around and do drugs and vices and all these kind of things. And then you look at a place like American colleges that are essentially just places where you can go and fulfill every, every vice and drink and party and sleep around and all these kind of things. We are building a brave new world where... You no longer have a, a moral compass because morality is all, always subjective in the eyes of these leaders. And that's exactly what they want. They want to give you everything you need, make it so that you are safe in your little bubble. You get a trophy for everything. And in that case, people are never going to rebel because they're too safe to ever think about what is actually being done to them. It's interesting. There's one one line in 
the the American reality section of the book, and you talk about um, America and much of Western Europe, for that matter, also lets in hundreds of thousands of illegal migrants and refugees, often from culture from cultures inferior to our own. And you know, we are facing this immigration crisis in America. It is it is what's going on is is criminal in my mind, but not because I have anything against these people. Um, not because I have any thoughts about anything except for the cartels are doing this to us and our administration is letting it happen to us. But when you say that cultures are inferior to ours, I want to give you an opportunity to, to, to clarify what you mean by that. Right. Well, you think about some of the things that go on in the Middle East, uh, the way they treat women, the way they treat homosexuals. These are, I would say, are inferior to Western values of equality and liberty and and freedom that we have after the Enlightenment did a lot of that to the West. You know, there are obviously things in the West right now going on that I would say, hey, maybe the Islamic world has some things right, too. You know, it's, it, you can kind of look at some of the things. But overall, as a whole, I think that the Western way of life and and Western ideals are the way forward for the best way to live. You know, they're, they're based on, on Christian values. And for me as a strong Christian, I would say that Christian values are the best way that you should live. And if you don't align your culture with Christian values, then it probably is inferior. You know, you had in the, in the 1800s, you had the practice of sati, which in India, this was the practice of if a man died, they would burn his wife to death with the wife. Now, for me, I can pretty clearly say that that is inferior to the way that the West would do it in, in the way that if, if you died, you wouldn't burn your wife alive if you died, right? And so you look at things like this and you can say, okay, there are things that are different in other cultures and there are things that are better about Western culture. Not everyone who comes from a different place is going to be some worse person. We have plenty of terrible Americans and terrible Westerners. <laughs> but overall, as a culture, I think that Western culture does it better than anyone else. I want to go a little bit deeper first into this World Economic Forum. And what is their end game? I think the end game of the World Economic Forum is, this might sound a little dramatic, but it is to herald themselves as new gods of the world. Nietzsche said it best when he said, God is dead and we have killed him. What happens when you destroy Christianity and, and morality in, in the West? You have to have some sort of religion or system to replace it. Mm -hmm. So right now you have leftism. You have the ideals of the World Economic Forum that come and have that because humans are naturally religious. You go back thousands and thousands of years, you have humans praying to climate gods or you know old school Judaism and, and Islam and all these things. Humans are naturally religious. They will latch on to something. So if you destroy the Christian values in the West, then they still need something. That is where this comes in. That is where the World Economic Forum comes in, the leftism, these companies trying to push ESG, all of this. It turns you into a devoted follower of their agenda because this is what gives your life meaning. Think about the lives of young people. We talked a little bit about it. They don't have meaning. They don't have purpose. They don't have a sense of adventure or quest in their life. They, they grow up in, in these urban hell holes and answer emails all day and engage in every vice imaginable. And they don't have any sort of passion. So the leftism religion comes in and says, we will give your life meaning. We will give you something here. Go care about the world ending from climate change. That is your life now. Mother nature is God. Uh, the gender stuff. This is your new religion to, to latch onto this trans ideology. It is about creating themselves as these new gods. They are, they have this hubris that is almost unimaginable, um, within human history of these types of people and the power that they wield over others. I, I really think that it comes down to a, uh, trying to create themselves as gods on this earth type of mentality. 
it's it's really bizarre i can't even imagine that like i i you know if you're a normal human you're just kind of wanting to live your life happily but mm-hmm. I, what you say about religion is fascinating and i and i as i go along in life i continue to see you know what people are naturally religious and if they don't have christianity or Juda- judeo christian values of any kind um any kind of faith based religion then yes, they go to this, the the climate crisis stuff feels religious to me. The gender ideology feels religious to me. The, the, you know, this fight for um, equity and inclusion feels like a religion to me. So is, am I, am I hearing you right in that these are the new religions for our young people because we've essentially taken God out of the equation? That's exactly right. And you think about something like climate change again and the religion of, of green, as I call it. I made a documentary about this a few years ago. Um, but you have, instead of having the, the Messiah be Jesus or God or some, you know, faith that you are looking to, faith, hope, and love as you, as you would have in Christianity, it is now, oh, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is coming in to save the world. It's very seductive and intoxicating to people to think that, wow, this new religion that I'm a part of, I'm now the savior. Wow, that's that 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 is my entire life. I will base my entire life on this now because I am the savior of the world, not some god, not some uh, objective moral truths. That's not the savior. It's me. So when you have that be the case, it's very difficult to take people away from that mindset because it is all about themselves. I mean, we live in the most vain and narcissistic society of probably all of human history, especially with young people today. And that is because of this. That is because of social media. It's because there is no objective moral truth for them to follow. Of course, there is one, but they refuse to or they haven't been exposed to it. Like, think about the politics right now in this 2024 election. I feel like a lot of the people who are participating in it are bad faith actors, Republicans included. I don't feel like there's much goodness with many of the people running for office and many of the people who are working in the campaigns. It feels more like business as usual. It feels like politics is a business. They're not worried about goodness in this country. And so what I mean by that is that if we had individuals who could fix their own lives and start working on goodness at the most that they can in their own lives, it's going to create a culture of people who want to do good, who then get together collectively to institute that good in society. But if you have people who are only focused on the collective before focusing on themselves, then we're not really going to be getting the things done that we need to get done. It's like people are always asking, well, when will the president change? When will America change? When will my community change? But they're never asking, when will I change? When will I do something to be this person who I want others to be? We're always looking for someone else to be good, but never looking in the mirror and saying, well, what can I do today to be good? If we all did that, I mean, think about the voting block and the the, the courage and the, the amount of community we could have of people in America if we all put forth that we are going to be good people and put that above, oh, I'm going to be a Republican person. I'm going to be a good person. Well, it's a it's a tremendous book. I can't wait to finish it because I am at the point where I wanted to cry (laughs) (laughs) because you're spot on. Here's the thing. When you write these first chapters, an analysis of where we are in America, you're spot on. I couldn't argue with any of it. So I'm I'm. I got as far as I could before I fell asleep late in the wee hours. I can't wait to finish it because I'm looking forward to the hopeful part. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really, I truly mean that it's, I hope we can have you back because I I think there's a lot of conversation to be had here. 
Uh, and it's, it's so great to meet you. And I congratulate you on a, a really a, an important piece of writing that I hope a lot of people will read. Gerard Baker. He has granted me permission to call him Jerry Baker of the Wall Street Journal has a new book out called American Breakdown. Let me read you one sentence. It's no accident that if you ask the leaders of the institutions that have seen the greatest declines in trust over the last 50 years, government, media, universities, big business, some version of Trump's to blame is probably the answer they would give to the question of why trust has declined. It's not their fault. It's all the fault of some malevolent, lying narcissist, some serpent-like creature who corrupted America's Garden of Eden. You know, I've actually written a little bit in the past about the way Hollywood in particular has gone from being essentially a kind of, um, you know, a business that's a, a, a cultural activity that kind of fairly reflected, I think, the values of America. You go back whether back in you know, the 40s, the great war movies of the 40s or the right. great... You know, the great musicals or, you know, great, great dramas of the 1950s and 60s. And there was always a, there was, you know, there was an increasingly important political dimension. But there was, there was never this kind of relentless sense that of, of, of America as a deeply flawed, corrupt, dysfunctional, terrible country, which I'm afraid is the kind of character of movies that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years. And so it's, so it's a very interesting way of thinking about it, Michelle. You're right. Back, I, as you say, I first came to this country in 1986. Um, you know, Reagan, it was the sort of, in, we're into the second term of Reagan. The country was doing very well. It was kind of mourning in America. There was a sense that, you know, things were on the up. And that was reflected, I think, in the culture of the time. And in the 1990s, when I came to move here, I moved uh, to Washington in late 1996. It was just the Bill Clinton had just been reelected. We were before the Monica Lewinsky trauma that we were all put through before that. But it was also, and I quite often reflect on the 1990s as a time of real sort of the pinnacle of American achievement and success. You know, the Cold War was over. The economy was booming. Inflation was relatively low. We were just, the internet was just taking off. There was this incredible sense that America had, um, you know, had really demonstrated to the world the superiority of its model, the superiority of its values. It had defeated all comers in the 20th century. You know, people talked about the end of history, all of that stuff, which sadly didn't turn out to be true. But and I think just, you know, again, and this is the, the thrust of my book, uh, Michelle, think about how in just a generation, We've lost that. We've lost, and again, not everybody liked Bill Clinton. I wasn't a big fan of Bill Clinton, certainly not his personal behavior. Right. But you go back and look at where America was in the late 1990s, post-Cold War, winning hot wars in Iraq and um, Kosovo, um, as I say, all of the economic success it was having, and the level of general sense of, of cohesion and purpose about the country was extraordinary right. at the time, and that in a generation has just, just been lost. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. That is what's so astonishing is how quickly this seems to have happened. And certainly we can point to moments like George Floyd, like the pandemic in recent years that seem to have been opportune times to really get people to sort of put their stakes in the ground and argue about stuff, cultural stuff. But this idea of, you know, the patriarchy and white supremacy and and, and those kinds of identity politics that have been really starting to crop up seem to be a large part of this. The first chapter of your book really talks about trust mm. <laughs> and how much trust has been lost in so many institutions. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, even the things that, you know, the studies now that come out to talk about the loss of trust, can I trust those studies to be telling me the yeah. truth? I don't know whom to believe anymore. W- what do you think the genesis of this is? Well, I think the, the, the main genesis is unfortunately people have been lied to for two, for, for so many years. I mean, that is, you know, this is, I wrote the book about trust and about the collapse of trust based on all the data that we have about how much, you know, public trust in major American institutions has fallen dramatically in the last 30 years. But in a sense, it's not a crisis of trust. It's not that the American people have just suddenly for no reason withheld their trust from institutions like the media, higher education, government, law enforcement, big business, science, technology, all those things that I look at in the book. It's that those institutions have themselves forfeited that trust, Michelle. It's that they have, they've, they've told us things that we have had reason to doubt or frankly had reason to s- discover were just not true. And, and again, whether that's the, the government is responsible for a lot of that, you know, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of what the government told us in the early 2000s uh, about, you know, the war on terror, about uh, the war in Iraq, you know, and I, by the way, let me say immediately, I was a strong supporter of the war in Iraq, but we were told things that weren't true. No wonder people didn't trust, don't trust in what the government says about things that are going on in the world, particularly like Ukraine right now. Again, I'm a supporter of what the administration is doing in Ukraine, but but so many people have, have, have seen the, the, the government essentially tell them untruths over the last 20 years. So the government's lost lost its credibility. The um, media, what you and I work in, Michelle, have dramatically lost the credibility that, you know, in in the 1970s, after Watergate, something like three quarters of Americans said they generally trusted what they read in news organizations. That number's down below 20% today. And again, understandably, because, you know, we've seen news organizations pursue these ideological views dressing it up as news when when people can see, and thanks to the internet in particular, that's one of the big things that's contributed to this, they can now test what they read or see on television against what they get, where they get alternative sources of information and they can see the bias. They can see the way that people are being willfully misled, whether organizations are willfully misleading people. So, you know, that's gone. We've had the pandemic. Trust was, you know, weakened in in the medical profession, in public health during the pandemic, in scientists. We had scientists, you know, telling us on the one hand that you, you know, it was you couldn't go out and protest against lockdowns or because that was a public health danger. But not only could you go out and protest 
you know, over the George Floyd murder, protests against supposed police brutality. But actually, it was necessary to go out and protest. That was an that was an act that was designed that would that actually would improve public health. Well, no wonder people don't trust. No wonder people stop trusting Anthony Fauci and the medical establishment because they were telling us these things that were just you know so obviously not true. So you know, we have over. Again, over this period of 20, 25 years, um, Michelle, again, you just talk, started off talking about the 1990s. We've seen institution after institution essentially fall to what I describe as an elite with values that are completely out of touch, that actually yes. are contrary to American values, historical values, and have tried to turn the country and basically turn the country against itself. And it's that for that reason that I think trust has collapsed so dramatically. When we talk about that country turning against itself, and, and I see it regularly. And I wonder if people, if this is so intentional, if this started as some people suggest back in the twenties with uh, Marxist folks coming into this country and starting these educational, this programming, if you will, or if this is just really what people believe and that they think they can make this place so much better without any real knowledge of what the rest of the world looks like. I, I wonder what what they think better actually looks like. Yeah, I, I think a few trends have been in place. Again, some of the things you described, Michelle, a few trends have been in place that explain this, the way in which these elites have taken over these institutions. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of it does go back, especially in education, to a kind of Marxist class, um, particularly, you know, what was interesting about you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, um, um, and China was essentially becoming, you know, embracing sort of capitalist ideas, at least in the economy, and actually mm. starting to grow. You know, Marxist ideas, Marxist economic ideas were thoroughly discredited. I mean, you know, we'd had a hundred years, as you say, of sort of march of the march of Marxist ideologues through our institutions, through many of our academic institutions. And we'd had this sort of tension throughout the Cold War between, you know, was Marxism a better uh, way for the world to work or was capitalism and free and freedom? Anyway, well, that 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 was really resolved with the collapse of the Soviet Union and with the you know the, the with the realization in China that they had to embrace free market reforms. So what happened? So these Marxists then you know I mean, they didn't they didn't really want to let go uh, of their ideology. They changed it from the economic field to the cultural field, and essentially saying, okay, well you know maybe the idea that you know the world is made up of a an economic structure whereby capitalists are exploiting workers. Maybe, okay, that idea wasn't so good, but we've got an alternative model for you, which is that, which is based on race and gender and this idea of, you know, critical theory, this, 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 this fundamental idea that, that, that society operates with these power structures, um, exercised, you know, by white male patriarchy in particular, and everybody else, you know, in this sort of intersectional theory is somehow the victims of that oppression. So that, so the sort of Marxism lived on. Another factor, um, and in fact, Marxism lived on and sort of reinvented itself in the kind of post-Cold War period and became so, you know, so widely believed. A second factor, I think, really played a big role in the, in the, in the dilution or the collapse of trust in American institutions driven by these elites pursuing their own objectives was globalization. You know, this became the mantra after the collapse of the Berlin Wall that the world was coming together 
together. It was, you know, the, we'd had periods like this in the, in the past in the world, but this was seen much more intense. As I say, you know, the, the, the old Cold War barriers had broken down. China was emerging into the world economy. Um, you know, you had this kind of Davos man phenomenon of people, you know, going to, you know, Davos every year, the famous World Economic Forum, and talking about the virtues of an integrated world. And what they meant by that was essentially an integrated world that would work for big business, um, you know, and that would be, you know, borderless sort of trade, borderless movements of labor, meaning immigration, unlimited immigration. This became a dominant sort of theory, almost a theology among the kind of ruling classes on both sides of the political spectrum. It's really important to say that, you know, d Democrats embraced globalization uh, as enthusiastically as Republicans had previously done, and re Republicans embraced it too. And what that ignored was the damage that globalization did to communities here at home, whether it was the loss of jobs, whether it was the the impact of immigration, uh, whether it was the sort of cultural decline that was represented by all of that. And what, and what, the way that, the, the form of that, that commitment to globalization also then took was the idea that the nation state was somehow, you know, invalid or somehow illegitimate and that we had no right to keep people out. We had no right to assert our national values because we were all part of one great global community uh, where we would all just, you know, we'd all, we'd all live happily ever after. And so the, and so the and, and American values are so distinctively American and American, except, you know, America was the country that was founded as an ideal, a country where people came here, you know, to, 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 to enjoy their freedom, to enjoy the economic opportunities that they could have, that this, these elites became actually hostile to that very idea because no, no, no American idea, because we now believe in this globally connected world, American values are no better than European values right. or even Chinese values or country or values of those people who are in, in the Middle East. And I think this elite, which took control then of the media, took control of our universities, took control of much of our permanent government, took control of big business. These, these ideas, you know, essentially transformed the, 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 the people who can, the, the institutions that these people controlled into these agents of values that were just not American fundamentally. And, and that's, so I think it's those, those two of the things I identify most in the book as having contributed to this trend of this extraordinary rapid seizure by the major uh, seizure of the major institutions by these elites and why they have pushed those institutions away from the values that actually most Americans have long held and actually the values that have genuinely made America great. It is stunning to me how we can look at the world and suggest that all countries share the same ideals and we're all equal. And, you know, there is not a such thing as American exceptionalism, which I think Barack Obama intimated in some comments of his during his presidency. Yeah. When you see that other countries and, and China, foremost among them, has a, an abysmal record of human rights. We continue to do our manufacturing there. We continue to rely on them for for production of, of stuff that is regularly sold here. When at any time, I mean, they are so hostile to America, they could say, ah, you know what, maybe we'll just unleash a virus. I'm just suggesting that. Or maybe we'll stop exporting what it is that you need in this kind of Cold War way. Now, we've got China, Russia, North Korea and Iran uh, forming this, what are some people are calling this new axis of evil. It, I, how badly did we underestimate China's power in in this whole sort of hierarchy of terrible stuff? The embrace of China was um, was 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 which which characterized again both political parties. 
um, after the after the end of the Cold War, uh, characterized the way big business went about relations with China, was a mistake. Um, it wasn't necessarily a mistake in terms of its in terms of its economic opportunities. China's a growing economy, rapidly growing economy. It was a good thing that China was liberalizing its economy, that it was growing markets. That was a good thing. There were opportunities. You know, many people um, benefit from it. Look, look at our iPhones, uh, Michelle. Right. You know, most of our iPhones are made in China. They're, you know, great devices, which we all love. So there's definitely economic benefits from from this relationship. The problem, uh, Michelle, was the way in which it was done, and in particular, the assumptions, which I would say at best were naive and at worst were positively treasonous, about what the United States could achieve by this engagement. The idea that so many people had, presidents from Bill Clinton through George W. Bush and Barack Obama, based their engagement with China on the idea that, oh, China's going to be like us. China's going to be, you know, the more we engage with them, China's going to become a democracy. And that's the surest way to ensure that we don't have conflict with China if we're all democratic, we're all basically following the same values. That was an incredibly naive thing to think and believe. Again, you might have been forgiven for thinking, I think, you know, this idea merged with the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, Soviet Union practiced communism for 70 years. Uh, it had failed. You know, Gorbachev had introduced, you know, perestroika and glasnost, um, you know, a bit of opening of, of, of society and economic restructuring. Um, that had failed completely. The idea was that China was now embracing economic liberalism. It was economic, embracing economic markets and that inevitably that too, that would either collapse, um, or it would have to involve the opening of society too. Of you know, China would become more democratic. That was the assumption. It was just wrong. And, you know, it, it was it was clearly wrong from quite an early stage. We, you know, admitted China to the WTO at the end of the 1990s. China was going to do its own thing. It was, yeah, it was liberalizing its economy, but it was also playing by its own rules. I mean, it was, you know, stealing our stealing our uh, intellectual property. Right. It, it was demanding companies transfer their technology into China before, you know, if they were to do business there. It was treating, you know, foreign companies, U.S. companies very unevenly in terms of the way um, they were allowed to operate there and kind of the regulations they were subject to. But we just said, OK, that's fine. We're just going to let, let them go on doing that. Um, and at the same time, of course, we, you know, all of this was 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 helping China develop militarily and politically and become an incredibly powerful rival to the United States. So, yeah, we, you know, in the pursuit of what was seen as economic advantage, we made we made terrible mistakes in the way that we allowed China basically to to to, to fleece us repeatedly. Hmm. Um, and I, as you know, Michelle, I'm not the biggest fan of Donald Trump. I think a lot of what Donald Trump says and does uh, is not particularly desirable, but why we'll give him credit for this when he came in in 2017 as president, he said, that's going to stop. We're going to stop treating China as though, you know, as though they're playing by the rules, as though they really are our friend in all of these things, as though somehow engaging with them is going to be of universal benefit for Americans. We're not. We're going to start imposing our own, you know, respecting our own interests, imposing our own demands and making sure that we're looking out for our own people uh, in this relationship with China. That was very important. And actually, I give some credit to the Biden administration for following on in that. But that, yeah, that was a terrible mistake, Michelle, that was made, you know, over a 20 year period from the 1990s up until uh, the mid teens. American Breakdown is the name of the book. It is a fantastic read. I can't recommend it enough. Jerry Baker, I appreciate your time as always. And thank you so much. All the best with the book. I can't imagine it's not going to be a success because it is so important for the moment. Uh, the, the discussion about trust and um, faith in our institutions, it's, it's critical. Thank you so much for your time.
Michelle, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me again. Likewise. He is Gerard Baker. We got we get to call him Jerry. The book is American Breakdown. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be brave, do good, and we will see you next time. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.